When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweets. ESSR, we're here. <sighs> yes, everybody, that's it. After a long, long, long wait, ESSR feature shows are back. Yes, I guess I bet you forgot that we did feature shows. I did too. But we are back. I am your host for this feature show, Scott McLeod. And as you can tell by the intro, we are, with the next few feature shows, we're going to be doing some profiles on specific wrestlers. And we couldn't think of anybody better. To, to talk about on this Friday the 13th. That's someone we recently lost in Bray Wyatt, uh, Wyndham Rotunda, uh, somebody who met a lot to a lot of modern fans. And we're going to talk about his short but very memorable career in this future show today over the next hour or so. But joining me today to talk about Bray Wyatt's career, first off, he's our very own rambling rabbit. And uh, if you've ever heard him on ESSR Central, he tends to ramble on beyond the point of you realising what the fuck was he actually on about and mainly repeating what the host already said. He is he is David Hockney. At least I'm not like, you know, Huskins the pig or something. You know, I'll take Rambling Rabbit, but that's a bit rich coming from a guy whose second show is called Scott Paul's Rambling Podcast. Yeah, well, I own up to, to that. It's in the branding. And be lucky, David, because you're almost something else. You're almost afraid of something else with the word rabbit in it. So get yourself lucky I changed that. I made it more PG. Yes, he did. <laughs> Next up, a man who's not been heard on any ESSR programming for quite some time. And he's making his long-awaited return, much like Bray Wyatt's long-awaited return back at Extreme Rules 2022. All he wanted is a simple yes or no, can you make the specific recording date? And all he did was send us QR codes and weird puzzles, which, is sick, which when you clicked on them, linked you to a man doing horrible impressions. He has uh, Daniel Campbell. Hello, Daniel. Mission don't know who you mean for these impressions. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, it's fucking Mario playing Jar Jar Banks now. That's what that sounded like to me. It's a me, Jar Jar. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, how fitting to pay tribute to Bray Wyatt with, of course, the uh, the someone that definitely will never be regarded as the Bray Wyatt of the Star Wars universe, Jar Jar Banks. Now, of course, it's just me. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello, Daniel. Uh, and finally, you know, many fans out there and the two men themselves wanted Bray Wyatt and Bo Dallas to do something meaningful in their time in WWE and they kind of got to towards the end. Whereas I would go to any lengths and not do anything else on the SSR with my brother again. 
an unrelated topic, Ross McLeod's here. Shut up. I have kept this podcast going with actual wrestling-related content, okay? Not you and Grant, you little anime freaks with your Japan show. Not the maths nerds who don't go outside like David and Stephen. I, Ross McLeod, the patriarch of the family. Kind of like the Bray Wyatt here. I'm Bray Wyatt and not yous are all the interchangeable characters wearing sheep masks. You're welcome that I'm here once again holding up the show. Well. How dare you? I've never once watched anime in my life. I resent those accusations. How, how dare you say that, but also be kind of accurate. <laughs> how dare you come in here with your accurate information, you slime. <laughs> it's like Marge and the Simpsons. I mean, yeah, we think it, but you don't have to say it. <laughs> all right, let's not stand about calling people freaks and all that, no matter how... F- how true it might be. We, we're here to talk about the life of Bray Wyatt and we're going to just run through some quick points of his life before taking on the Bray Wyatt character. The man born Wyndham Lawrence Rotunda, May 23rd, 1987. He was obviously taking his name from Barry Wyndham, very respected wrestler in his own right, tag team partner of Bray's father, Mike Rotunda, uh, who is also better known to most people as IRS. And he's also a, he's a, he has a third-generation wrestler with IRS as his father, Blackjack Mulligan being his father. And ironic, given that Barry Windham, who he takes his name from, was in the new Blackjacks back in 1997 for a little while alongside JBL. So there's some useless trivia for you. He he was a standout amateur uh, wrestler in college and did uh, quite a bit of football as well, uh, despite his like larger frame later on wrestling, was quite an athlete in his younger days before signing on to then FCW, which was the developmental system of of the WWE before NXT. Uh, he most notably would be teaming alongside his brother Bo as the, uh, as the Rotunda brothers, as he would win the FCW Tag Team Championships at one point. The random tag team that they won them from was the team of Justin Angel, who was going to be Justin Gabriel, and Chris Logan, who now wrestles as Brian Cage. So... I had no idea that Brian Cage was employed by WWE at any point, much less wrestled in FCW, so there's some more trivia for you. He used to wrestle pretty much as a two generic southern you know, brothers down in FCW before he got the call in 2010, the summer, to join the second season of NXT as under the name Husky Harris, where they made mention of his wrestling heritage being a third-generation wrestler under the tutelage of Cody Rhodes, another multi-generation wrestler. And he didn't really do much in terms of NXT. You know, he was eliminated fairly early on in the season. And it mainly just, I mean, the name itself, his whole character was, this guy is fat, pretty much. It was his character. His nickname was even the, the Sherman tank with the Ferrari engine. And Cody Rhodes even brought him out on an episode of SmackDown when he was debuting his dashing persona to go like, look at how handsome I am. And then look at this guy I'm stuck with on NXT. Uh, would, after NXT season 2 wrapped up he would join the Nexus and then later on the new Nexus under the tutelage of of CM Punk when he was in the new Nexus before Randy Orton wrote him out of TV by punting him very hard in the head, never to be seen again. Before I move on to another part of his career we really want to talk about, does anyone here have any actual memories of Husky Harris? Uh, very vaguely actually, yeah, he um I think he was actually one of the first who was, like, in danger of being eliminated or going out the first round. But luckily, Titus O'Neil was there to take the fall for the first time round. But I do remember there was a lot of the, the of the pros at the time 
they looked at him and thought they didn't think he was like the same cut cloth that the most other superstars, because most other superstars at that time were much slimmer, much lighter, more agile. But I think that's where the name. Uh, Daniel well, Rossi, do you have any memories of I was about to say, well, Dave cuts out there. Do you want me to jump in? It's ironic, Dave, was saying <laughs> the rest of it's his mic's like potatoes. He's clearly trying to power his mic with a bag of McCain's frozen chips. But anyway, <laughs> Dave was going quite deep into Husky Harris there. I, I think Dave gave him more airtime than WWE did, to be honest with you. My, my one shining memory of Husky Harris was... See when Punk was in the Rumble and all the Nexus guys were with him in 2011. Yeah. And they eliminated everyone without a struggle, except for Great Kali, and Kali managed to eliminate Husky Harris. So that was the one thing I've noted did as Husky Harris. But it's funny that it was Randy Orton that wrote him off TV because we talk later on. Randy Orton and him have a, a tangled web of a career, you know, from every gimmick of uh, Mr. Rotunda <laughs> or Mr. Wyndham. Um, somehow he ends up back with Randy Orton. Yes, I really should have learned his lesson at some point. Stay away from Randy Orton. He's a right. He's like he's like Uncle Albert. He's bad luck. He's a he's a donor. <laughs> I mean, probably plays way put it. Like my only memory of Husky was the. Do you remember when CM Punk was initiating all the members of the New Nexus? Mm. Yeah. And I think wasn't it Husky that had to take like whips or like kendo sticks to the back or something yeah pretty much yeah when he goes to the initiation the other nexus members like held him down while he got while he got whipped with a belt like they all had to go there on initiation michael mcgillicley had to get beat up by the rest of the group uh david otunga had to get beat up by the big show yeah yeah it was sort of trial by fire with the new nexus a little bit wasn't it yeah and i also very still very young when i was watching the new nexus i didn't know the is it out so like taking people off TV, sending people back to developmental, and clearly that's why Bray was sent down because I think back then Derry weren't happy with his way. They wanted to cut down a little bit. But I always found it weird on TV, like and lead up to WrestleMania, Randy was taking out every member of the Nexus with the punk kick, and he's lead up to his match with Punk. And I always found it weird that Husky was the only one that never came back to TV for the last few months of the new Nexus run. But we soon learned why. And while he was back there in FCW, he did a gimmick which never made it to TV. The only evidence of this that exists as like some grainy pictures of it, but he created this character called Axel Milligan, which was this guy in jeans, cut off t-shirt, and wearing this like Jason Voorhees esque like hockey mask. We kind of sampling out new characters more horror elements where we learn that Wyndham would turn out in real life really loves horror movies and loves taking inspiration from that kind of genre. But he would mostly on TV yeah, and you'd never know oh, yeah, you yeah. horror films. You really got to look into the detail to really get that little uh, little bit of info. But he would mainly be Husky Harris again on TV, once again, backing up his brother Bo, who's been pushed as a single star going after the SCW title. But eventually, when the transition was made over to NXT, then we would be introduced to his new character, Bray Wyatt. This kind of cult leader character inspired by likes of Waylon Mercy from mid-90s WWF, a little bit of... Uh, Robert De Niro's character from Kate Fear, little Charles Manson, all mixed in there. And Bray May is on. I remember watching early 2012, 2013, NXT, watching these vignettes. The first one I thought, is that Husky Harris? Because I hadn't thought about him in a long time. And then just watching these promos, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And soon after, we'd be introduced to Luke Harper and Eric Rowan as this Wyatt family. Apparently, 
on some live events. There was another version of the Wyatt family that also included members such as Victor, who would go on to be in the Ascension, and Summer Rae at one point was in the Wyatt family before they eventually decided to keep it to the core three. But what uh, Daniel Stark. Dimension- what pocket dimension exists that Summer Rae became a full-fledged member of the White family? I mean, she, I mean, after his passing, she was talking all about it, that he would give her advice and everything. He was actually very passionate about her being in the White family. So clearly, it was a case of he wanted people that he kind of liked that were in developmental with them to be part of this group that he clearly very much believed in. But Daniel, I'll stick with you. What are your memories of early days in XD Brewer before his call-up? Because like his whole run in NXT, much like the, the Shield and Biggie Langston, it was like, this was before the network era of NXT, where I think a lot of people jumped on the kind of NXT bandwagon. So it was very much the hardcore of fans that were watching at this time. Yeah, like it was. I mean, I remember that there was a good period where he was injured, so he was basically just hanging back and just cutting promos all the time. Um, but he. It was almost mystifying just hearing this because, like you said, it was very different from what we were getting normally. And you could tell this was the first kind of big like gimmick of this nature they tried in a very long time. I mean, they tried and failed with similar kind of you know spooky, creepy style characters. Um, you know, like you think easily of like Mordecai, uh, Kevin Thorne. Heidenreich, like they just didn't work. Um, mm-hmm. I of course mentioned Heidenreich. Heidenreich, Hobbs, best theme gosh. song in the business. <laughs> but it was just every time he spoke, you just shut up and you just listened to him. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, that continued as he eventually progressed later on into main roster WWE. But then, you know, there were some nice ad wrinkles of his time in NXT. Including the fact his first TV loss was to Bo Dallas. <laughs> like his own brother was the first guy to put him down on TV as, Br- as Bray Wyatt. The only one who could pin me is my brother, Demet. Brother, you just have to slap the other brother down. Ross, I do not believe what you are saying to me right now, honestly. But oh, get the- out. Ah, oh, shush. Uh, Dave, for as long as your microphone will allow you, uh, carry on with what Daniel Daniel said about how Bray didn't really wrestle a lot uh, during that time because he was injured. I think that actually helped his character because he kind of sat there in his rocking chair, which became another synonymous part of his character. And he could kind of sit there and struck down these two big monsters and Harper and Rowan. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, he had this persona about, you know, being the puppet master a little bit. You know, why should he you know, get his hands dirty when he's got these two big fellas, Harper and Rowan, who could easily just do his, uh, do the job for him. It's, mm-hmm. and he just had that very sort of laid back demeanor about him, but behind it, you know, whilst it seemed a li- little bit welcoming, you know, with the lantern and the rocking chair and stuff, you could tell behind, behind the mask, you know, there was this evil persona who just had, you know, nothing but bad intentions for those that stood in his way. And I think that was quite, quite intriguing when it came to his character and that you know you just look at him you could tell he was an enigma a little bit of a little bit of a, a puppet master mm-hmm. so it was uh, it was really good to see that and making the most of harper and rowan as well just elevated them you know from an in-ring perspective mm-hmm. uh russ as far as i remember i don't know if you watched a lot of nxt around that that time but like it showed how popular these guys were amongst people backstage that they were called up fairly soon into their run the main roster. So, Russ, what do you remember about 2013 Raw when, like, their 
and Vignette started playing on Raw before the big debut where they took out Kane. Yeah, they, they get some pop as well. You know, people had been um, people had been cheering the vignettes when they aired and were still, you know, chanting for the Wyatt family. Um, this was before I was watching NXT, but NXT was becoming the underground show. It was becoming the sort of the way certain people are like about AEW now, or mm-hmm. maybe to people that listen to Central, how annoying I am about Impact now. Um, <laughs> it was the show that people were telling you, you have to watch this. It's two hours a week. It's, you know, it's in its own universe and it's allowing for great characters to develop. And from not knowing much about him to when, obviously, they announced he was going to debut post Money in the Bank and then he showed up, I, I believe, two weeks before and the pop he got when his music hit, the Wyatts came down, you know, an established character such as Kane, who was coming off of the the Team Hell No, where he was over as anything at that point as well. The fans cheering, this is awesome, when he was getting absolutely beaten to a pulp by these three monsters. It was, it was an eye-opener. It was like, okay, the cheer and the fact that the company felt that he was big enough to take out one of their featured stars of 2013 in the main event section of Raw. It just made you think, wow, right, this this must be something. And as Daniel said, when he spoke, you took notice. If you didn't know him then, you did know him and you sat up and took notice. Mm-hmm, I definitely agree. Like that final vignette they do like on the throughout the episode of Raw with the debut, that final moment where there's that camera crew looking for the compound and Harper takes them through the house and then Bray does that final vignette which leads into the now infamous we're here which would go in front of their, every one of their entrances like it's almost like a mini short film in a way and you say they're similar we're chatting this is awesome there were one or two let's call them twats who were chatting Husky Harris which thankfully that died down very quickly into his run would be this is something very different indeed and if you haven't already go out there and find their last appearance in NXT after their call-up, because they make it one more appearance at the Raw debut to beat up some jobbers, and the crowd are giving them a hero's welcome, and Bray's promising he's going to go up to the main roster and tear the machine down, and fans are chatting along with everything he's saying. And there's even one guy who just shouts, Preach, Bray! So it shows, ironically given the character, the cult-like following that they had at this point. And Dave... Well, early on into their run, they were throwing in with some of the big names, like we said, Kane, Bray's first match was at SummerSlam, the Ring of Fire match, basically a take on the Inferno, which was a synonymous match with Kane, which hadn't been seen in a long time. And then they were in there with Daniel Bryan and CM Punk, and that storyline would try and get Bryan to join the group. So even though Triple H didn't have as much creative control on the main roster at that point as he does now, it's clearly they had at least some support to be thrown in with some key names. Yeah, I think fan support, I think, is what really drove them into that main event position. Because, you know, like I said er- earlier, sometimes all it takes is a good character and promo skills to get yourself in the uh, sort of main event position. And that's exactly what happened. You know, they made a, an impactful debut taking out, you know, a character who was synonymous for being a bit of a monster and a bit of a, a dominant performer, you know, it literally would dis- just destroy everybody in their path. Those three as a unit definitely had the capacity to do that. Although I think the Ring of Fire wasn't as well received as I think a lot of people intended because it was essentially just a Poundland version of the Inferno match or the 
Firefly Inferno match a little bit because nobody got set on fire. <laughs> it was um, booking wise, I think in terms of matches, didn't do Bray Wyatt any favors. But it was, um, yeah, I think just the fact that they were brushing shoulders with main event talent, you knew they were going to be, you know, they were destined for big things on the main roster. Uh, we'll get both of your opinions. Start with you, Daniel. What did you think of the storyline, the idea of Daniel Bryan, of all people in the mirror, being the first person they tried to get to you know, recruit to this group? Because I think a lot of people at this point were annoyed about the booking of Bryan. He, it looks like he's been pushed out of the main event scene. The Yes Men was trying to hijack Raw and trying to push Daniel towards the main event. But there were some good moments, I thought, in that storyline between him and Bray. Like, one thing that I quite liked was just how they took advantage of the... Like, you think of it this way. Daniel Bryan's been pushed down, he's been beat down at every possible opportunity. He had the title, then Triple H screwed him out of it. He had a chance to win the title again, and then Shawn Michaels screwed him out of it. He's been like mm-hmm. like foiled at every turn, so of course someone's going to be at their low point. And what a better character to then put them with than Bray Wyatt. Mm. <laughs> because it just worked so well, and then seeing that visual when there was that brief period that Daniel joins the Wyatt family. That was almost unnerving in a way, but then the payoff, which I know we'll talk about momentarily, set up so brilliantly. It did feel like the membership criteria was very simple for the Wyatts at that point when they went after Like, You have a beard? We also have beards. You should be with us. And <laughs> it's a weird thing about this cult thing with because we had the storyline with Brian, we had the stuff with Randy later on, and then we also we have Braun who joins the group. But it does seem weird. I heard a lot of common complaint on Twitter at the time. I don't know what you guys think of this. Some people seem to say that for a cult leader, Bray was not very good at actually recruiting people to his cult because some people would leave very soon as part of a storyline, or they'd have people where they'd show up in sheep masses for a one-off appearance day. And they had such a larger cult, but for the most part, it seemed to be I have four main followers, and that's it. I would argue that the reason that that happened is because I think the the support for Brian was just too strong, and that his booking of joining the Wyatt family was just in the complete opposite direction of where they wanted him to go. It wasn't necessarily beneficial for for Bray Wyatt's booking, it was more detrimental for Brian's. And I think they did everything in their power, the fans did at least, to just try and, you know, get him out of it. And, you know, they had the the cage match with the Usos on the early part of 2014. And my God, the fan response, I mean, you could hear a, I mean, nobody in the crowd was not participating with the Yes chance. It was one of the most incredible sights of fan participation I've ever seen. And, we did get that banging match at the Royal Rumble that year between the two of them, which I still think is one of my top 10 matches to this day because both of them just went out and delivered. And I still think it's probably not necessarily one of Brian's best matches, but it's certainly one of Bray Wyatt's best matches. So it just goes to show even with bad booking, you can still get a pretty decent match from the payoff. What do you think about the whole Daniel Bryan thing? Do you think Bray... Or like the whole thing about Bray the cult leader, do you think he should have recruited more people into the faction? What were your thoughts about the Daniel Bryan story? Well, 
I, I don't know if anyone will, will get this reference, but the show, the following, is what I always thought mm-hmm. about when I thought of Bray Wyatt. When it's this charismatic cult leader that can get to anyone, and that he, you know, people flock to him. He doesn't go to them. He puts the message out there. He plants the seed. He plants sort of like Joker. If if anyone's seen the 2019 Joker film, where just that one message on the TV sparks a mass riot. That's what Bray Wyatt should have been like. WWE, when you look at that 2014 roster and when you look at the fact that they had so many people down in NXT, I think more people should have been in the roster because, a, or sorry, in the family, because you could have done things like having people used for a means to an end sort of thing. You could have had people brought in, they're in for a couple of weeks and then, no, you're not pulling your weight. So, you know, his henchmen, his his heavies, his lieutenants, Harper and Rowan would beat the holy hell out of them. And it would, you know, it would give Bray that extra unhinged edge and also keep you guessing, like, who's next to join the Wyatt family? Who else are they going to get? And, you know, it would keep you on edge, like, oh, God, what, what if such and such screws up this week? It would have made someone who was already must-see TV be must-not-miss TV. Um, and... Yeah, I just, I think there were so many avenues with the Wyatt family that as a recruiter weren't, weren't, you know, explained or weren't explored more. I very much appreciate the reference to the following, a very underrated show. I mean, the first two seasons are good, the third one you can ignore. But (laughs) I do agree with the whole paranoia, like who else could it be to to join? Because that was a big appeal for the NWO at the start of it, where people then WCW were like, who else could from inside the, the company could join the this renegade faction. Uh, but as, as hot shot as some aspects of the angle, I think were, as David mentioned, that thing, that moment from the Raw and the cage match where Brian turns and everyone's doing the yes along with at the end of the cage match, one of the loudest pops at the time, one of the, probably the one of the loudest pops in Raw history. And then you had that match, a very underrated match at Royal Rumble 2014, which Bray won, which was a win he needed, uh, one that, Gave a lot of people false hope that, oh, he's been knocked down now, but he'll come back in the Royal Rumble and this will send him on his way to WrestleMania. And you can ask poor Ray Mysterio how that worked out, just for the audacity of not being Daniel Bryan. But, uh, boo that thing, man. Yes, boo that man. A few that. I boo. A few <laughs> that a lot of people brought up. A few that a lot of people brought up when talking about memories of Bray and the White Fan, especially in the early days, is something we're going to talk about now, something to look back on very fondly. And it's the Shield versus the White Family 2, as I said, pre network era NXT groups uh, coming together. Both trios had been made to look great on the main roster in an era where WWE weren't really doing factions. And then when the two came together, everybody was. Everyone went ballistic for it. The reactions, like the match at Elimination Chamber and then the rematch on Raw. I mean, I would argue, as some others have said, that they maybe they should have taken this all the way on to WrestleMania because it probably would have been better than what happened to both teams at WrestleMania and that the Shield got put into a squash match against the Outlaws and Bloody Kane and Bray Wyatt lost the match he should have won, which was the story of his career. But, hey, Daniel, I think it's clear to, to look back on this and see why everyone... As such fond memories of this run, this brief interaction between the Shield and the Wyatt family. Just the pre-match moment of the two teams there, the lights have came on from the Wyatt's entrance, like the lantern's gone out, the lights are on, 
and it's this rumbling in the arena. They're chanting, this is awesome, holy shit, whatever. The bell hasn't even gone. They haven't even thrown a, first, like, a single punch. It was one of those rare moments, lightning in a bottle, that you very rarely would get anywhere further beyond that. And it's one of those matches that you just describe as a moment in time. And literally the moment that they came out, the stare-off was going on, I'm sat there watching it just like, oh my god, I think I have a wrestling boner. <laughs> Give me this! Well, that's, a, that's an image I could have gone the rest of my life without having. The bell but... has rung. Bells will be ringing. Uh, <laughs> Please don't use moving ring bells in the same sentence. Speaking of anything else, Dave, I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to think of anything, even the Chamber match itself that was really memorable about Elimination Chamber 2014, which said something about the product at the time and also just how hot people were for a feud like this. Like, like I said, in an era where we aren't doing factions, you got the two, these two trios that have been booked like monsters, like, in uh, their own right coming together and you generally it was a toss up to think who could actually win yeah it's one of those feuds where you know it's full blown faction warfare like there was no getting around you know who's going to do what in this circumstance it's going to be all out carnage these two are like some of the hottest acts in the company at the time which was I think um, just over a full year after the shield first arrived in the company altogether as well so there was uh plenty of build towards why i think it was a clash between a new generation of talent which would then go on to define the industry for more than you know the next five to ten years give or take uh it was it was just a delight to behold as well because all six of these guys extremely talented in their own right and you know obviously the, the shield members have all gone to become successful individual stars whether it be with wwe or AEW. But it was just that blend of styles and the whole personas of their gimmicks. You know, you've got these, you know, head, like these essentially riot police style characters going up against against like the the hillbillies from Deliverance. It's very much a, a different clash of styles. Uh, but it was it just gelled so brilliantly in terms of you know, in-ring action, outside-the-ring action, and just, it was carnage at its best, and both these factions knew about carnage, if uh, if there's history in WWE is anything to go by. And they had this match, like I said, at Chamber, and then they had a rematch in Chicago a few weeks later on Raw, the same Chicago show where uh, Paul Heyman opened the show to CM Punk's music to really rile people up. Uh, they lost, Shield lost the first match because Ambrose went missing after a brawl in the crowd, so then it went three on two in the Whites, one using the number advantage. And then Seth kind of walked out in the team during the Raw rematch because he was sick of like, the infighting at the time, which is, it helped keep the Whites strong and helped further tease a breakup of the Shield, which wouldn't happen for a few more months. So, but Shield, we might, thankfully, managed to put those differences aside, and we never had to worry about Seth costing the Shield or screwing the Shield over ever again. Uh, that's what we call dramatic irony. But... <laughs> Going into WrestleMania, the, the team were strong. They had a they had a win at the Rumble. They had a two big wins back to back over the Shield. But Ross, then, for a lot of people's eyes, 
is a momentum kind of whip, hit a brick wall, and the brick wall's name was John Cena. <laughs> Uh, there, there's a very much was a repetitive nature, I think, for a long time with a lot of Braze feuds, and I think it can all be pinpointed back to this John Cena feud, which had all the potential of going into the Mania match. I mean, that legacy promo package is phenomenal, but it's a case of people were still very much sick of Cena and Braze's this hot new thing, and so of course Cena won. Yeah, and it happened the next year with Cena as well, didn't it? With uh, Rusev, three pay per views straight. Um, the Shield, Cena, um, the feud the next year with Roman and uh, Ambrose, it always seemed to be when Wyatt had the numbers advantage, he would win. Whenever Wyatt had a big match, he, he never ever won. You know, he, he never won a fair match. Um, and yeah, the brick wall that is John Cena. Um John Cena is coming off, you know, it's, it's easy to forget, but the year before, um, main event at WrestleMania with The Rock, um, in 2013, he held the world title, sorry, the WWE and world title, uh, so two world title runs there, was competing for the world title at the Royal Rumble in 2014, so it's, this was still prime Cena, so... A win here could have... It wasn't like Austin Theory beating Peacemaker at this year's WrestleMania uh, or whoever that was that showed up instead of John Cena because he certainly couldn't wrestle. Um, This would have been... This was the moment to make Bray Wyatt. He's less than a year on the main roster. He's he's had a couple of stop-start things. Um, He's had an obsession with Bray Wyatt, uh, with uh, Daniel Bryan. And... Yeah, I just I, it's so frustrating, and it, it seems to be when we talk about every WrestleMania match that Bray has, The Undertaker, Randy Orton twice, um, the thing with The Rock. It just it never ever painted Bray in a good light. He was um, he was the anti Undertaker. It seemed at WrestleMania. Yeah, it's ironic given that they seemed later on as they got delved more into the supernatural elements, they wanted to make him so much like The Undertaker. But Dave, a lot of the stuff around the finish and Bray trying to tease like John to attempt him to happen with the chair, it really smacked of embrace to hate the story with Kane from a few years earlier. That one more tease, like maybe this will be the year where John Cena finally turns heel. But at this point, I don't think anyone cared because nobody ever thought Cena would actually do it. Yeah, no, his actual heel turn came the Monday after the year prior when he defeated the Rock. He actually turned his heel in the in the ring, but. I, I digress on that. But yeah, as as Ross summed up, you know, he was very much the anti-Undertaker. You know, for a guy who was built up as such a master of mind games and very much pulling puppet strings left, right and centre, you'd have thought, you know, that behind his, his calm and inviting demeanour, there'd be actually like a really evil persona that's just waiting to tear people apart. Uh, and nothing could overcome it, you know, because they've just lost to the mind games. But it didn't really matter at the end of the day because he never got any significant wins that would really boost his character. And that's no, that's through no fault of his own because he could go in the ring, you know, like, like I said earlier, he could brush shoulders with main event talent and would feel right at place. It's just that it feels like somebody backstage, you know, not to name names, but 
somebody just didn't feel like pulling the trigger on him the whole way and making him, you know, effectively a successor to the Undertaker persona, the one who was the master of the mind games, who would lose very rarely. He would get his henchmen to do the most of the heavy lifting, and that would make him feel more like a special attraction. But two out of three losses to Cena on straight pay-per-views in 2014 does not do him any favours whatsoever. And then he's sort of flip-flopping back with the Wyatt family members for the next couple of years. And then he has to cope with injury as well. It's He gets put in good positions, but it just to there was just no major payoff. And I think that really hampered his character. Mm. Yeah, talking about like the other rest of the matches, Nat, I feel like once the you know, match happened, people kind of lost some faith in it. Also, you had the Raw the night after where the fans were all chatting. He's got the whole world in his hands. So clearly there was some faith in the Bruce Wyatt uh, character. But then you had the Magic Extreme Rules, which a lot of people piled on. It was the worst worked match of the year in the Wrestling Observer that year, where Bray only won the cage match against Cena via Spooky Child. And then they had the Last Man Standing match, I believe it was, a payback the following month, which Cena won again, uh, thus winning the feud overall. So... Not a good outcome for, for Bray. And then we mentioned like The Undertaker. He gets to have that what would be a dream match against the Undertaker the following year, but we all know there was no chance of him winning because Taker ain't losing to straight WrestleManias. Yeah, like he, he wasn't losing too straight because the thing that I think that was also slightly... One thing that I thought was kind of slightly wasted about that story was you had an opportunity to tell a story about how, you know... Obviously, it was like, right, can Undertaker redeem himself from the year prior? He's just lost the streak to Lesnar. And Bray was, like, talking him down, you know, like, you're not invincible anymore. You know, the same trope that you hear a lot of people saying in the years afterwards. I think they could have done a little bit more. Obviously, they were trying to keep the mystique of, right, we'll keep Taker showing up until Mania itself. Didn't help that they were on the didn't help that they were in California for WrestleMania at the point where the clocks hadn't gone back, so they were in daylight for Bray Wyatt's entrance and for Taker's. Kind of ruined it ever so slightly. Um, but I think that like Bray needed a win at WrestleMania. Like, badly at this point, he needed a win. And like a win over Taker, that would have been massive. But... Mm-hmm. Like we all said, like there was obviously someone through backstage, not naming names, who just went, "We're not pulling the trigger on you yet, pal." That, yeah. see, that's this, quite this good where, shit yet. <laughs> this is the problem as well with part timers and with labeling people the new insert name here, because why would Vince pull the trigger when he still got the old Undertaker there, even though? You know, Undertaker had clearly deteriorated. It was clear that he was not capable of putting on a performance when needed. Uh, sorry, uh, as often as needed as he used to be. Um, and yeah, it's just it's one of those things that he clearly was heir to the throne. He, you know, we saw, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it later on, the the whispering in the ear uh, on Raw Thirty. Undertaker clearly wanted to pass the torch, but it's just it got to the point where, yeah, just nobody was going to pull the trigger with him and make him the new, you know, heir to the darkness uh, character when Undertaker was still about. And that, 
that hindered things. So it's it's kind of as much as I love the Undertaker, looking back, it kind of shows why people were upset at part time. Was still kicking about at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because from there and for the next five or so years, like you had likes of Lesnar and Goldberg, those kind of people took up a lot of space on the WrestleMania cards, which became a big source of annoyance for a lot of hardcore fans who watched like all year long. I do think, like, yeah, like the whole thing about the new face of fear that he was promoting in the lead up to it, like, Bray had to do like, literally all of the the build to this, all the promo work to lead up to the matches. Taker wasn't going to be on TV until May itself to lead to that bigger, like, moment. I really think, looking back on it, the moment to do Bray versus Taker at WrestleMania is WrestleMania 30 when the streak's still intact, because either you have Taker win, like he does at Mania 31, but this time, Maybe some people won't be as annoyed because there was a strong contingent of the fan base who never wanted to see the streak end. Or if you actually want to do an actual poor torch passing and make someone the new of somebody, having Bray beat Taker would have been a rocket to him, you know, and really would have actually cemented him as this new kind of horror like character on the main roster. And plus, like, Taker was clearly not motivated in that Mania match as much as he was motivated in the, the Lesnar feud later on in 2015, which was about avenging the streak. So if Taker comes back after a year, beats someone else at Mania 31, then picks up his feud with Wyatt, and Wyatt and Taker have a Hell in the Cell match like Brock and Taker did, that would further help cement uh, Bray on the main roster, in my opinion. I don't know if you guys share the sentiment about the potential of him breaking the streak. I think that uh, would have been a huge boost for Bray at that point to break the streak to be the guy that you know this is the guy that we've shown him as a supernatural guy I mean hell he was able to beat up Kane so what's to stop him beating up the other brother of destruction that was where they could have easily gone with it but instead they went down the route of what we got we got Taker and Lesnar we got Bray Wyatt and Peacemaker and like realistically, I think like Lesnar and Taker, yeah, that was good. Obviously, Taker, we know now in hindsight from obviously behind the scenes material, felt horrible after that Mania match. And kudos to Bray Wyatt for kind of giving him some of that mojo back because there was a lovely shot in the the package they put up on SmackDown for him where you see him and Undertaker hugging after the match. Like, you could tell, even though the loss, you know, I think Bray should have won still, but you could tell at least in doing so, he did a favour for Undertaker. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I, I got the impression that it was 2015, you know, the Undertaker was very much on his last legs uh, at that point. I think they just wanted to milk the undertaker Lesnar feud as much as they could because both of them are massive draws in their own right. You know, they main evented SummerSlam that year. They went back into Hell in a Cell that year as well. Like, Bray Wyatt and the Wyatt family just felt like afterthoughts a little bit. You know, even what happened after the Hell in a Cell match where they carried him out the cell, they ended up getting jobbed to the Brothers of Destruction as well because, you know, that year was Undertaker's 25th anniversary with WWE and there was no chance in hell that he was going to lose his 25th anniversary match against the Wyatt family if... I see what you did there. I like it. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Uh, yeah, there was no way they were going to let, you know, The Undertaker lose in such a big match, given that he was such a val- probably the most valued commodity that WWE had 
you know, it was sort of like, you know, the anti-heroes versus the true evil, as it were. And it, was, it wasn't even like a set match in stone. It was the Brothers of Destruction against two members of the Wyatt family. Surely one of them was going to be Bray and the other was going to be Braun Strowman because he was the biggest of the lot. But it just ended up being it was just Harper and Wyatt. It was just a bit random. It was a bit flat. And the bookers just did not do Bray Wyatt any favours with the the booking. You know, with them, you know, Bray obviously losing to Taker, the Wyatt family, you know, it looks like they've taken control of Undertaker by carrying him out of the cell. And then immediately the next month on pay-per-view, it was all for naught. It was, uh, some of that booking from 2015 to 2016, it's beggar's belief how they're able to get away with that. And, Looking at also, like I said, after the scene, if you'd, you had feuds with Jericho, Ambrose, which started by him spookily appearing in the Hell in a Cell, and then there was that match which only ended because Ambrose pulled on a monitor and it blew up in his face, which helped Bray win. I think Bray won pretty much every match of that feud uh, against Ambrose. Then also the Taker stuff happens, the Roman Reigns feud, which goes on forever, the whole anyone but you, Roman, which was also the sentiment of many fans at the time. But looking at what oh, Ross said about... You have just realised as well, Bray Wyatt has faced all three members of the Shield individually inside Hell in a Cell. Two very much mixed results. <laughs> but looking at the Roman feel like Ross said earlier, but he would win like when he had a numbers advantage, like Harper returns to help him beat Rowan because that's something we forgot to mention. At one point in 2014, they were like, oh yeah, by the way, I've set Harper and Rowan free, so like, you like the Wyatt family, do you? Well, we're not going to give you the Wyatt family, we're going to give you three guys individually, we have nothing for. But, so then Harper returns to his side because Rowan's injured. Harper helps him win uh, against Roman at Battleground. He and Ambrose reunite to defeat Bray and Harper at SummerSlam. The very next night, Braun Strowman debuts a black sheep of the Wyatt family. They beat Ambrose, Roman and Chris Jericho at Night of Champions and then ultimately Roman beats Bray inside Hell in a Cell in 2015 before they said, oh maybe this time they'll actually make Bray the new Undertaker. Nope, he's lost again and we swapped Braun out for Harper because Braun's still not ready yet, but that was a weird time in the Wyatt family with us because I remember you and I watching that Raw after SummerSlam 2015 where there's all that rumours of a new Wyatt family member, and when Braun showed up it was very much the sentiment of, who the fuck is this? Yeah, there was all the memes, wasn't there? Uh, obviously, Game of Thrones was the number one show on TV at the time. He just looked like Samuel Tarley on steroids. And it was a case of... Um, he was this massive, massive unit of a guy. But no one knew who he was. There was no reaction. It was just like, wow, he's big, but, you know, what? Um, and, yeah, it kind of became, as David mentioned... Um, Braun was taken out of the tag match despite being advertised at Survivor Series. Um, Braun got the the win over Jericho. Uh, uh, I believe it was Clash of Champions where they had the six-man tag. Um, so it was all about protecting Braun at that time. Uh, Harper started taking the pins a lot more. They then bought, brought Eric Rowan back to take the pins because someone has to do it. And yeah, it was just a weird, topsy-turvy time. And then we talk about Bray Wyatt, them never really pulling the trigger with him. When they set the set the Wyatts free, 
It was kind of weird because Harper wins the IC title when they should be pushing Ziggler because he's really over in 2014. Harper then wins the title, but then instead of keeping the title, he then loses it to Ziggler. He then flip-flops back and forward, being part of the authority. He's not part of the authority. He's with Rowan. He's not with Rowan. Rowan get this weird, I'm a genius push, only to end up in the Battle Royal at WrestleMania 31. So it was quite weird. It seemed to be that all three members of the Wyatts, right, we're not going to push you individually, but we're going to set you free individually, but not push any of you. We're not going to put anything for you. And it just... It was damaging returns because I remember um, Backlash 2017, uh, Rowan and Harper have a match and just no one cared at that point. No, no one cared. It seemed to be Vince McMahon and Luke Harper's went into this, wanted Luke Harper to be a Southerner. He's from New York. He wanted Rowan to be something he wasn't and Rowan's in-ring you know, ability never got him over with fans. and. Yeah, it's just it was it was a weird one. It just seemed every time they got back together, it seemed like this is diminishing returns because we don't have anything for you. This is diminishing returns because you can't make it on your own. And also, while you're a unit, we're not going to push you to your full potential. So it it done more damage than good. These constant breakups and reunions. Yeah, because like no matter how many times they broke the two of them up, we always know eventually they get put back together when they don't have anything else for them because. After that 2017 match, what happens? They get made the bloody Bludgeon Brothers. And ironically, when they were wiping through the rosters, the Bludgeon Brothers was the most pushed and the most invested there you had gotten in them since probably their NXT days. Even right before Harper's eventual release, they got back together one more time against the team up against Roman and Brian because randomly, oh yeah, Roman's this, this maniacal genius who's plotting to kill Roman Reigns for some reason. But... Then we go into 2016, there's that rumours of Bray Wyatt going after Brock Lesnar and having that match at WrestleMania, so it would be the first of two times Brock Lesnar would refuse to work with Bray Wyatt at WrestleMania, we would learn. Uh, it would only come, only the closest we got to it was in uh, Roadblock in 2016, the start of the year, where it was maybe a handicap match, Bray and Harper versus Brock Lesnar, but Bray was injured, and Harper would get injured in the match. So Harper gets battered by Lesnar for like two minutes while Bray just stands on the outside and then awkwardly runs away from Lesnar at the end of it. Uh, they have that segment with The Rock, which the less said about that, the better. Uh, and the best, when it actually starts looking up for for Bray is after the 2016 draft, where he and Rowan move over to SmackDown, but Rowan goes away for a little while shortly after for an injury, but Harper gets brought back. Strowman goes off to Raw to start his own push. And they don't get to have a backlash because it's too soon after Orton got his head caved in. But we'd start the Bray Wyatt Randy Orton story, which seemed didn't seem like much. It seems regular spooky bollocks from Bray Wyatt. Bray won it, no mercy in the main event against Randy, thanks to Luke Harper. But then they've came a little bit of intrigue. People weren't really sure where this was going to go. Where Randy helps the Wyatt family a week or so later on SmackDown and says, "If you can't beat him, join him." Uh, Sorelli, which has been referred to since as the Viper and the Family, which a lot of people are surprised it went on as long as it did, and actually became one of the more more appreciated storylines of that period. Yeah, it was a it was a weird one to say the least when it first started off. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. Fair enough. You know, it's a, it's the old fable. Uh, 
particularly, you know, when Wyatt got that win on, I mean, it was a big win over Randy Orton, but it was a B pay-per-view as well on a show where the WWE Championship had to go on first because it was at the same time as the 2016 US presidential debates. So I don't know, maybe he was just uh, a main eventer, you know, through circumstance really, but Oh, that, um, I, I do remember them winning the SmackDown tag titles as well at one mm-hmm. point. I'm pretty sure it was uh, one of only two tag title wins that Bray Wyatt won, the other obviously being with Matt Hardy as the Deleters of Worlds uh, the year after. But then they immediately lose them to Alpha Academy. Like, if they, if they were going to go all in with this story arc, why would they suddenly, you know, drop it after just a few weeks? You know, particularly if there was that yo-yo back and forth booking during around rumble time where randy orton won his second rumble bray wyatt finished third and and yet they go into wrestlemania as you know the wwe champion and the challenger respectively but again the less said about that match the better oh it 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 just feels depressing now you know sure wyatt gets these flurries of victories and potential long-term storytelling but He's just made to look like a chump, really, a lot of the time. Yeah, but Daniel, I think some people were thinking, oh, this is going to last a few weeks. This whole, we've seen this before, you're breaking down the group from within. But people started to see some potential longevity in the, the story. Once after Randy sacrificed himself at Survivor Series so that Bray can get the win for Team SmackDown at Survivor Series in the 5-1-5. And then a couple of weeks later where Brandy helps he and Bray won the tag team tails, which I think they then hold like a fever thing with Harper. I do love how they got into that match where like American Alpha won a couple week uh, tag tournament. As soon as they won, Wyatt's be on the screen went, oh, by the way, you're fighting us next week for the number one contendership. And then they just beat them. So kind of fuck you to American Alpha. But when they got tagged, people started thinking, huh, this could actually be going somewhere. Like, I think they could have done well with having the tag belts on them just even like another month longer. Like, build it up at least. I mean, even, I don't know, like, even have it that they dropped it, like, the SmackDown before uh, Elimination Chamber. Like, mm-hmm. do that, give, like, a new wrinkle. Like, you know, he's gone from this to, obviously, what would follow afterwards, like, the WWE title. So you could easily have done a little extension on that. But it was, it was very intriguing. You went from, obviously, two very, like, you instantly recognizable figures when you look at Braun Strowman and Eric Rowan marching at the side of Bray Wyatt to his trusty right hand Luke Harper and Randy Orton, who, you know, attire wise could not look any more out of place if he tried. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it'd be like, I mean, you'd hardly see like Rowan appearing as a new member of Maximum Male Models. You know, anytime soon. <laughs> but I think Orton's involvement in the Wyatt family, I was genuinely intrigued. And it was the first time in a while I'd, like, I'd sat down and been hooked on not only a Bray Wyatt story, even a Randy Orton story. Just like, where is this going with this? Because that should not be there. That somehow works. I don't know how. But you just couldn't help again but watch and see what happened. And then along rolls uh the start of 2017 and everything just everything just goes up bellhouse for bray for a little bit <laughs> yeah i mean 
I know it's been said over the years about really bad mashup scenes, but when Randy was in the Wyatts, when they come out as a group, they had probably one of the worst joint themes I've ever heard. Where it was the opening guitar riff of Randy's Burn My Light theme. Then it was, I hear voices in my like uh, It gets all distorted. Then it does the usual Wyatt intro. And then it's just Bray Wyatt's entrance. But it's, it's a theme, it's just too busy for what it is. And then, yeah, Randy's <laughs> win. Randy's win at the Rumble was really, the way they did it, it's like, oh, look, he went, yay, let me roll and Roman didn't win. Wait a minute, is Randy going to WrestleMania? Wait, John Cena won the WWE title. Oh, they're not doing John Cena versus Randy Orton again, are they? <laughs> and then Elimination Chamber, we'd heard the rumours, but we didn't believe them until they happened. And not only did he win the Chamber, he pinned Cena and then pinned AJ and then beat them both in a trouble without the following week on SmackDown, Ross. But Bray Wyatt finally won the big one. He won the WWE title, and as he said on SmackDown the following week, he truly had the whole world in his hands. Yeah, I absolutely loved the Randy Orton storyline. Um Obviously, to starting from just nothing, as you mentioned, just spooky, spooky nonsense for then Randy Orton, who had become a bit stale. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he had the the chosen guy, the you know the corporate champion, twenty thirteen, the Rock version, um, and the authority he had. You know, his big return where he took on Rollins, and then he just he kind of felt like another guy on the roster, and with the just the charisma of Bray. The the fact that the fans wanted the Wyatt family to be successful and then Randy Orton gets placed in there, it just it led to some great moments. You mentioned obviously Survivor Series, the Wyatt family stand tall. Um they then run through the tag division. I didn't mind there was only a couple of weeks of a run because this was never meant to be a long term tag team, but yet they had teams since October. They had a short run with the belts. It was nice to get Bray his first title on the main roster. They did the free bird with Harper, and they needed Harper out of the way. I know people kept going, could they not have just done it a triple threat? You can't just keep adding people to matches, okay? That's the argument constantly. Could they not have just added Punk to Roxena? Could they not have added Ambrose to Roman versus Triple H? You can't just throw another guy in there and change a bad storyline, okay? The story was Bray versus Orton, and the match being bad didn't mean that the story was bad. The story going in was great. The title loss meant that Wyatt, that Harper was on the outs and Randy Orton knew that he had to get Harper out of the way because Harper was the guy that cost him that first match. So the tag title loss made sense in my mind. Um, Orton winning the title, I think there was, as you said, a bit of, yes, it's not Roman, but again, as we mentioned, Randy Orton needed a reboot. The Wyatts and Orton were as over as anything. And then when Bray gets that title win, the deafening pop, the fact that he pins both guys clean, then pins them, then gets a clean win on SmackDown. I would have liked it if this was a case that he'd maybe a two-month run and maybe had another pay-per-view match to sort of solidify himself before Randy Orton. But then, you know, because I think we all knew where it was heading. It was heading for Randy Orton being the being the WWE champion, and now as we kind of rebook in our heads here, I wonder would it have been better to have Bray win the Rumble and Orton win the title at yeah. Elimination Chamber? But then again, I mean, who wanted to see Bray Wyatt versus Jinder Mahal at Backlash 2017? I'm mad. Not man. this Only guy. Nope, 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 nope. Just keep Jinder Mahal out of this discussion. 
you've just unlocked some form of PTSD in poor Hockney here. Like, I know. We'll, we'll, we'll not show up to work tomorrow. People will have to show up at his house and find the words Maharaja written in shit on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, while Dave goes and cowers in the corner, trying to forget the memories of Jinder Mahal as the re champion, and we try and get that image of all that shit out of our heads. <laughs> the Brady title, and then after Randy, what could have been interesting, Wrinkle saying, I won't challenge you at WrestleMania. Because you are my master and everything. He, that led to some convoluted, a couple of, couple of weeks of AJ and Harper fighting out for the number one contendership, only for then Randy Orton to decide he does want to be challenger and burns Bray's white compound down. Uh, so clearly he just wanted access to the white compound so he could burn it down. That was his whole goal before going after the title. And then he beats AJ. And all this really did, other than his serve Orton winning the belt, was to have AJ believe he was getting screwed over just so he could motivate him versus Shane McMahon, which turned out to be better than anyone ever thought it would be. But after, despite everything that bad that happened to bring his first few years in the main roster, when he won the title and hanging to WrestleMania, there was some hole that maybe they would see since. Maybe this would be the moment where things all turned around, but... Honestly, I mean, he's he's had a bad luck of he's had a bad luck of it at WrestleMania, and honestly, I think his main match with Orton is one of his absolute worst because all anyone can think about, no matter how much the great story was going into it, all anyone will remember is the fucking projection. Mm, the bugs on the mat. It was the cockroaches. There was literally zero point in that. Nah, mm, come like, on, man! It what, looked cool. Projections, you. At what point did they have maggots and cockroaches intertwined in that storyline? It was, if anything, they should have just had a the Firefly Ring of Fire, Firefly Inferno match, whatever it's called, because Randy Orton literally committed arson on Bray Wyatt. I mean, there, there is one slight flaw to that, and that is um, they haven't thought of that match yet. But like, the problem with the whole thing was they just, oh, I get. They try to do something new. They tried to give us a new spooky element of Bray. But they just went and made it far too complicated. Like, to, to give a comparison to The Undertaker, what made it work is that it was simple theatrics with him. It was just simply dim the lights. He runs out. He sneaks out from under the ring. Oh, look, he's there. Wow. You don't need projections. Yeah, Undertaker had lightning as well. Yeah. You know, lightning and fire like that is... That's scary. Not bloody projections of bugs, which, to be honest, aren't that gross unless you were literally bathed in a in a bathtub of them or something like something like I'm a celebrity or something. But no, get Bray Wyatt to shoot lightning out of his hands or something. You know that that is would make him scary. What if we cast no, a projection of Jinder Mahal in your house? Now, this is a problem with Bray Wyatt and that character is the fact that at times, and there's been you know talk that this part of this was Bray's idea. At times, they didn't go fully in with him and fully in with the character, but then other times, when he was given an inch, he took a mile, and he went too far into the scary element. You know, we can talk about Vince not pulling the trigger. This bug thing and the you know the scary images that was Bray's idea. It's like the Clockwork Orange sort of thing, torturing people with these 
these horrendous images. But then obviously they've got to do it on a PG show. Much but, like you do it with your holiday photos. Uh, <laughs> shut up, you look like Kurt Angle's accountant. Anyway, um, anyway, yeah, it just it seemed at times the, the spooky element went too far. And it, as Daniel said, simple theatrics because you're limited with a live audience of what you can do. You've still got to portray this as a sport. You've still got to portray this as why do these guys want this championship? And sometimes they went too far in or were too slow, as we'll talk about later on with builds with Bray Wyatt. And other times they just rushed it. They never found that perfect balance of enough theatrics, enough spooky stuff, but enough storyline and great and ring stuff at the same time. Which I think is why it's such a shame that this is the match that ended the feud sort of thing, because the storyline leading up to that was as perfect as Bray had got in that feud from September to the night of WrestleMania. That was the perfect time of Bray Wyatt, and that for me is the peak of Bray Wyatt. Well, say it did. It, it didn't come off maybe what they imagined because rather than it being oh Randy Orton is freaked out because he's bathed in all these bugs, it looked like oh Bray Wyatt's slipped the production guy a tenner and used some sort of fucking editing software to make bugs appear. Which by the third time it happened because it happened three times within a span of a few minutes. By the third time, nobody really cared, and where there was no reaction, Orton wins it. I'd like to skip over a little portion of Bray's career for the next little while because, I mean, we, when 2017, the year he wins the title, the other best thing you can say happened is he got sick, which means he didn't have to dress up and drag his sister Abigail to fight Finn Balor. It shows how bad your year was because... Oh, Christ, Wyatt, yeah. By 2019, I think Bray, in a lot of people's eyes, was as done as a character as you could get until a row after WrestleMania, I believe it was, where a weird vulture puppet popped out of a box... And then the following week, there was a spooky doll character somewhere. And then the third week, we got introduced to the Firefly Funhouse, which nobody knew what to make of at first. But very quickly, it seemed like this is a new, totally new thing for Bray Ross. And like you could see there was more beneath the surface and you're, you needed to tune in every week to see what would happen. And in the fourth week, you were introduced to Bray's secret, which was our first glimpse of The Fiend. Yeah, it was um, just to touch obviously on that 2017 portion that we're skipping over. Um, moved to Raw without any explanation. Beat Seth Rollins, no explanation. Beat him twice, actually. Um, dressing up in drag, then not dressing up in drag. And then at the start of 2018, you know, I talked about not striking that balance of spooky and theatrics. They brought in Matt Hardy because they wanted to do more of that. The Matt Hardy thing kind of worked for a while and it would have maybe made more of an impact if the Battle Royal was on the main show instead of the pre-show. But yeah, when him and Matt Hardy got together, there was an excitement about it. They win the tag titles and then they're just not on TV. They just they had this thing that they liked and they didn't put them on TV and they lose to the B team. Then they attack the B team and it's like, oh, they're turning heel and then nothing, absolutely nothing. And then, as you said, he goes away. The Firefly Funhouse, people didn't know what to make to make of it. I liked it because it felt very much like um, like Stephen King's It, the Tim Curry version, mm-hmm. 
where he's that he's called he's a clown he's meant to be happy he's meant to be jolly but he has that sinister dark side it's to lure people in a false sense of security and yeah it was just the more and more it, it gained steam the more and more uh, captivated audiences you know it wasn't in matches but he was taking people out left right and center and it was just it was so good mm-hmm yeah, and you had all these references to his past characters throughout the fun. It was like he paint in the second episode, so he paints a picture of a burning down hut, which is to represent the Wyatt compound burning down. He's got Abby the witch, aka Sister Abigail, Mercy the buzzard, paying homage to the inspiration of of a uh, whale and Mercy Huskus the pig boy and things like that. And yeah, like Dave, it was a cross between. As Russ said, Stephen King's it and US like children's brother and Mr. Rogers, which a lot of Americans pointed out. This kind mm. of he seems all nice and everything, but he could turn at any moment. Yeah, I remember when we first reviewed uh, the Fiend's character back in like 2019 when he first arrived. And the the impression I got was I like how he's referring back to the old aspects of his character, obviously Rambling Rabbit being the uh, sort of fresh new addition to the to the fun house but the the comparison that drew to my mind it was the youtube series uh, don't hug me i'm scared which is uh i don't know if any of you have seen it but it's a it's a youtube series where it looks like it's all playful and happy and colorful etc you know it, it lures people into a false sense of security or like this is going to be a really nice and friendly welcoming type concept but it gets to a point where a lot of the jokes and a lot of the humor that they do is very much, you know, very dark and disturbing. And if you'd saw any of that, you'd feel a little bit grossed out or, or disturbed. And it gets to a point where it feels like it's about to cross over to cross over the, the Rubicon into like a new dimension of darkness only for it to then, you know, end on a relatively high note, you know, there's smiling, there's waving, there's music playing. And, it definitely made you feel like you're in two minds a little bit. You know, you're looking at this Jekyll and Hyde persona of Bray Wyatt a little bit, where he's battling that that inner demon which has taken its final form in the fiend. And that fiend entrance at SummerSlam is still it's one of the most awe-inspiring moments I've seen having watched WWE for almost two decades now. Forever jealous that Gary got to actually be there for that. Mm. Kind of jammy bastard. That jammy, uh, handsome bastard. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think we could all remember in our own ways watching that entrance. Like, and there's even like videos of a W watch party where Johnny Gargano's there watching it. He's jaws on the floor. Like, everyone's mesmerized because no one really uh-huh. knew what it would look like in terms of when he'd actually wrestled and Daniel, like, Sorry, Finn Balor was like his first main target, so he seemed to be going after people he'd feuded with in the past. You know, the Fiend remembers obviously targeting people who had wronged Bray in the past, and he pretty much murders Finn almost literally because he tries to snap his neck at one point. Yeah, I was about to say, like literally, that is the setup for the finish. I'm pretty sure, but mm. it was freaky as hell because I remember watching it. Um, like, I think at that point I was just in the room by myself. Like Pamela just came in, and it's the moment like it cuts to the heart, the camera that's going to show him in the entrance way, 
and you just see him holding the lantern, which is no longer a traditional lantern. It's Bray Wyatt's head. And it, fre- it actually freaks me out. I was just like, mm-hmm. that, <laughs> that was mortified. That was mortifying. And did it not get like a whole bunch of complaints from parents and stuff saying it was too inappropriate for PG TV? Probably did. Just all the people just being like, you cannot be doing this on PG television. That is not acceptable in today's mm. society. I don't know why I'm making them sound like this when they're American, but hey, we'll go with it. Um, <laughs> it was the Irish or something. Yeah, the, the Irish contingent in America. <laughs> yeah, but that Bray Wyatt lantern with his decapitated head. It was just like uh, capital what the fuck style TV. Yep. It was surreal watching it. The version of his theme that he came out to was just perfect for the vibe. And then he proceeds to, as we mentioned, attempt to murder Finn Balor. Yeah, and Russ, you talk about like sometimes they don't strike the IR and sort. sometimes they go too far. And after this great debut, he had Bray taking people out on a weekly basis. You never know who was going to be next, but he wasn't actually having matches. You know, takes out Mick Foley and ends up adopting the mandible claw, which to Foley's approval. But they went a bit too far and had him go after Seth Rollins and the Universal title, which led to one of the most hated matches, I think, in modern WWE history with that Hell in a Cell match, which happened a week or so around the. Uh, within the same week, I think, of the debut of AEW Dynamite. So, if anything, it seemed to be drawing more fans away from WWE. And then, just so they could say they did it on Halloween, the horror movie character goes to Saudi Arabia and beats Seth again. But by that point, I think that quite a bit of damage had already been done to the mystique of the Fiend character. Yeah, um, and it seemed to be the mistake constantly. He had to be in the title picture because... The mask were selling, the lantern, you know, Daniel's Mrs. Doyle impression aside, the lantern, because <laughs> it got, uh, got complaints about how over the top it was, just had hardcore fans wanting to see more of it. The the, the fact that, as we mentioned, Bray continually, despite being knocked down constantly, the fans were behind him, wanted him to do well. He had so much behind him that WWE were like, we're putting him in the title picture because... They saw money. They wanted that guy at the top of the, the top of the food chain. But what they never think about is if you don't pull the trigger straight away, what happens to that character? It loses momentum. And then what happens when you eventually need to take the title off of that character? Yeah, as we'll talk about in a wee minute, it, it never goes well. Mm-hmm. Why it had won the WWE tag titles what, uh, twice? Why it had won the WWE Championship, he had done everything he needed to do with the titles. He was a Jake Roberts-style character. He was an attraction who didn't need the title. He didn't, he was a, Jake Roberts' whole gimmick was that he was a sadistic prick (laughs) who'd love to torture people with Damien. The Fiend was the 2020 version of that. He was, he was someone who, his rhyme and reason, as you mentioned before, was going after people who had wronged him. And you could have eventually done a title picture thing where he was like, I don't want the title. I just don't want you to have it. That that could have worked, but they threw him in far too soon. It was still over, and I think everyone was just like, 
ah, oh God, how's this going to work? Because this was at a time as well, Seth Rollins wasn't the most over person because he had said some things about the Young Bucks on Twitter and about AEW starting. And uh, I wonder if people feel that way now about the Young Bucks, considering what happened to CM Punk, but we'll move on for that. So you had a guy who wasn't over and was being hated by hardcore fans and you had a guy who was being loved by hardcore fans and they were going to put that finish in there. I mean, even on WWE's watch-along, X-Pac was like, well, how do you get DQ'd in Hell in a Cell? Because that's what it looked like. It, they didn't announce this is a no contest for the safety of the competitors involved, which, you know, would have fit with the Hell in a Cell logic. They just rang the bell and people were like, wait, what? Really? Like, what the hell? <laughs> and yeah, it just... It derailed the fiend and it led to a bunch of feuds that just didn't need to happen. Yeah. But then we got to see a bit more of the Fiend's actual supernatural abilities, which extended to turning the universal belt from red to blue uh, and making them as a baby face for all of two weeks while uh, he waited for Daniel Bryan to get a haircut. And he also brought out that horrendous custom Fiend belt, which they charged a horrendous amount of money for. Uh, for me, I think the highlight of his run as universal champion was that strap match from the Royal Rumble between him and Bryan. Mm. I, I really do not remember it. I, I think that's the problem with uh, the Royal Rumble. People tune in to see the Rumble and not a lot of people tune in to see the WWE title picture. But then, of course, we had uh, another brick wall, a slightly older, more feeble brick wall that likes to headbutt lockers in the form of Goldberg, Dave, who took <laughs> oh, the Universal title, oh, no. title away oh, from him. No. With one of the Please. worst jackhammers I've ever seen. Oh, why do we need to talk about this match? This, I mean, if the Fiend wasn't, the Fiend character wasn't murdered inside Hell in a Cell by Seth Rollins and the Sledgehammer, like, why did they have to have a mid-50s Goldberg do it in Saudi Arabia? Like, and I think this was the Fiend's first pinfall loss. In fact, it's, it's probably his only loss ever since returning at SummerSlam 2019 with the new character. It Oh, all because they wanted Goldberg versus Roman at Mania that year. It was, it didn't do anybody any favors, particularly Bray Wyatt, because he needed that emphatic win over uh, the Hall of Famer to really solidify his character going into Mania season. But they had to, they had to throw him to the Wolves yet again, much like they did with Kevin Owens in twenty seventeen. They had to throw him to Goldberg just because they wanted a specific match for that year's WrestleMania. You know, Mania 33, it was Goldberg-Lesnar. That year it was supposed to be Goldberg-Roman, but obviously COVID happened and we got Goldberg-Strowman instead. But I digress. I suppose the only plus we did get out of it was that COVID-Mania did give us a very good, a very entertaining Firefly Funhouse match between him and John Cena. Because I think... WWE was backed into a corner at that point to really put on something entertaining. And, you know, they had a chance to sort of right the wrong they did at Mania six years prior, you know, where Bray should have won against Cena the first time. This was a sort of way to sort of fix it again, but also squeeze in a few inside jokes as well, which I thought that sort of made it entertaining at a time where we all needed to be entertained. 
But if you're trying to get the fiend over as this unbeatable entity, you don't have him lose in two and a half minutes to an aging, semi-retired Hall of Famer in Goldberg. Yeah, I'm at a decision so bad, I, I think this is to blame for causing COVID in the first place. But Daniel, as Dave said, it led to a lockdown wow. mania in the, in the performance centre, where this is the most successful example of letting Bray Wyatt go full Bray Wyatt. When we got a moment, I think you'll always be remembered for and very positive examples, and probably the, one of the best examples of cinematic wrestling. And it divided a lot of people, but I loved it this Firefly Funhouse match, a.k.a. the complete deconstruction of John Cena as a person and a character. I mean, that makes for one hell of a dissertation title as well, but the <laughs> watching that back, like it was it was a very strange period because obviously we had two big matches they were building at that point. One was uh, Taker and AJ, and then the other was White and Cena. And then they said, we're going to do these cinematic matches. We get the Boneyard match on night one that was really good. Then night two, we're treated to this where it was like every single thing people wanted to think about John Cena essentially got played out in the match. What would happen if John Cena was the heel with the NWO stuff? Of course, I always still love that moment. You know, he goes to punch Bray. Great ducks and immediately comes back with you can look but you can't touch <laughs> that like, oh it was <gasps> really just glorious watching it they had you could tell they were just having fun mm-hmm. and like that was that was the firefly funhouse condensed into one match all it was it was anarchy it was chaos it was playful it was colorful uh and it made anybody except bray wyatt Look like an idiot. Uh, right. So, like, like Dave said, this was a period, you know, where we all wanted to be like, entertained. Everyone had their own individual homes watching this, and like as Dave said, we had the Boneyard match. That set our expectations to what cinematic wrestling could be, and then this went beyond anyone's expectations. And like you said, all the end jokes, like references to WrestleMania before, like when Bray said, "I was the color red in a world of black and white," and then seemingly for a lot of while, because John Cena wouldn't come back until. After crowds came back, he's like, for a while, I was like, did, did, did Bray Wyatt actually murder John Cena on pay-per-view? Because there's that moment where it cuts back to Titus O'Neil, and he probably has a reaction that sums up how everyone else felt about the match. Yeah, I agree. It was, it was amazing. Um, David talked about, obviously, Goldberg beating him to set up a specific match. I don't think there's anything wrong with setting up Goldberg-Roman, but that then goes back to the point I made before the the double-edged sword you have with putting characters like this into championship pictures. How are you going to get the title on them? How are you going to lose it? Um, the, the match itself was amazing. It was so creative. It was everything that we've talked about Bray Wyatt, you know, being. Um, and because of the, the nature of... Um, of that WrestleMania, you know, being able to do cinematic matches... This was absolutely great. This was, as Daniel mentioned, everything hardcore fans wanted to think about John Cena. This was everything that we wanted to see from Bray Wyatt, but we couldn't because you were in a live atmosphere. This pre-recorded sort of match, it was just so good. And it sort of felt like Bray getting his win back from 2014 
And it was, you were hoping that, right, this is going to lead to Bray Wyatt, you know, having a sensational run because we're in the pandemic era. We can do these sort of matches now. We have time to tell a story and we don't need to worry about the live crowd because we can do these things, uh, pre-tape them and put them in. But this was the absolute highlight. This was the pinnacle of it. And it was absolutely sensational. And it just makes you wonder, you know, we talked, Daniel talked about the Boneyard match. What would a, what would AJ Styles against Undertaker and Cena versus Wyatt look like in a normal stadium show? Would they just have been matches that we kind of went, oh, that was pretty good? Or would they have been these memorable things that we would remember forever? So this is one of the good things about that WrestleMania being behind closed doors. Yeah, definitely. It was for the highlight in a very dark period. Obviously, it was his title loss was set Globe versus Roman. Roman then, because of previous health conditions, didn't show up for a few months. So it ended up being Strowman versus Goldberg, with Strowman winning the title. So it started he which had some promise, which then immediately fell off a cliff right into the swamp when Bray took on Strowman in a feud that we all wanted to end. It's been highlight being Alexa Bliss's partnership with Bray starting through there. And then by the time Bray finally won the belt at SummerSlam, uh, everyone immediately forgot about it because Roman Reigns returned and a week later won the belt to start off the reign. It's still going today. Still going to see the tribal chief. So Bray is a three-time world champion, a two-time tag team champion, but he never felt like it. You know, it's very much like in that era of two world titles when somebody would come in and say, oh yeah, so-and-so, former world champion. He'd have the reaction of, oh yeah, so he fucking was. Like your Jack Swaggers or your Great Kelly's or people like that. Like, Fuck yeah, he was a world champion. He was a universal Jack, champion at some point. Jack Swagger is probably the best example you could, you could have given there. Or, or Dolph Ziggler, given how briefly he held it and got injured during his run. But then we had that final feud of the Fiends run before Bray's release in early 2021. The feud with Randy Orton, which should again be a case of him getting his win back like it was with, with Cena. But it seemed to go exactly the opposite. In fact, it got worse where we had, again, literal murder happen when the thing was burned alive. Then Alexa had to carry the role of creepy character with Randy Farrell, including burning Randy's face, where Randy wore a mask for a week, and then came out one week, we looked like he had jam rubbed on his face to highlight how he was burned, and then showed up a week later for the rumble, like, oh, his face is completely fine now. Uh, and then we had the match at WrestleMania with Bray coming out of a box. Randy wins again because Alexa Bliss appeared with ink on her face which seemed to be setting up a feud between those two somehow which never happened because Bray got let go I want to get your guys reaction because Ross you were I don't know if you were covering Central yet or I think you were still doing Raw Report maybe but this was a weird period of time where it started becoming more common for big releases to happen but Bray's was just an event all of its own where it seemed to come out of nowhere and it seemed to be one of the most shocking releases of that period. Yeah, um, Bray Wyatt had taken time off because of the death of uh, Luke Harper and unfortunately he was not in a good place. Um, WWE officials noted that he had came back, he'd put on a lot of weight, he didn't seem motivated anymore and it just got to the point where I think Bray refused help and WWE let him go. 
And it's it's a sad period of time because you can completely understand we've all been through that sort of loss where you just you lose motivation, you 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 just don't care anymore. And I think at the time, you know, it felt like, oh my god, you know, they've completely missed the boat here. I think it was the best thing for Bray Wyatt to go home and spend some time with family and get the help he needed before coming back because he was he was clearly someone who was struggling at the time and that's kind of what led to the the Randy Orton win but the we we talk about obviously the the whole run from WrestleMania I mentioned how we thought this was going to lead to something great I think yeah if they just had him beat Strowman who was never meant to be champion in the first place for the title at Money in the Bank and then kind of just ran with the Fiend character as champion you know, you could have done the whole triple threat. You could have had Roman. Uh, you could have Roman win the title by pinning someone else. You could have Bray go elsewhere. Still do the stuff with Randy Orton, but unfortunately, real life problems got in the way. And yeah, it just they, they kind of abruptly broke Bliss and him up just because of the real life implications that that were happening around them. And it's just a shame we never got to see something come from that because. WWE rarely does intergender wrestling. I doubt they would have done Bray Wyatt versus Bliss, but it would have been interesting to see who Bray got to his side and who Alexa got at her side. Mm-hmm. Although uh, they, did do, they did do Randy Orton versus Alexa Bliss for Fastlane that year. I said and... WWE rarely does intergender wrestling. <laughs> not Colin, never does and she won that a match is generous. Yeah, I suppose she won by basically cowgirling him. Jesus Christ, keep your mind out of the car. <laughs> You're a disgusting human being. <laughs> Get back on Tinder, you absolute horn dog, honestly. Daniel, I'll move to you. Tinder my heart reacts again. Uh, Tinder media's running wild. Something's Although... raining again. <laughs> oh, Lord. I mean. Daniel, your reaction yes. to this release, please get us back on track. <laughs> Gladly. Um, I, like, like many of the thoughts that Ross mentioned, that period of time was just not good, I think, for Bray. Particularly just coming off of, you know, like, everyone was rocked when we lost Brody Lee in December 2020. And for that to happen at that point, going into WrestleMania, Bray, obviously at that point, was not, like, getting the help that he was needing at the time. Like it was a double-edged sword. Like you knew it was the ideal for him to go home and just take time to himself. But at the same time, like it was just before like the fans were coming. It was like just as the fans were coming back, they could have given like the fiend a big grand reintroduction if they wanted to. But no, they they instead opted for the release, and we were denied any more Bray Wyatt for just a little bit of time after that. Yes, indeed. Uh, the most we really heard of Bray after that was talk that he was doing some horror movie in Hollywood. He was working, uh, producing this film. There were photos of him uh, on set. No really words came out really since about what that project was or if it's still even going ahead or what happened to it. But then, obviously, fast forward a year later, Triple H has taken over, head of creative after Vince Manis forced 
down a bunch of people who were let go over that period are starting to come back. And then we get these teases, uh, these QR codes, the story of the white rabbit and like Jefferson Airplane's uh, white rabbit playing on the speakers in arenas. And I think after a few weeks uh, leading into leading up to Extreme Rules Day, everyone and their granny seemed to work out it was Bray Wyatt, but we all still had this doubt. And weirdly, at that his return was the true main event of Extreme Rules. When we finally got confirmation, mm. all the characters appearing in the front in the crowd at Extreme Rules, that he's got the whole world in his hands, and one of the absolute greatest reactions ever when he appears with the lantern. He doesn't even say anything, he just blows the lantern out and the show goes off air. Mm. But everyone is happy because Bray is back. Yeah, I mean, what a response as well to his return because I think people were clamoring for him come back given that you know he went through so much with uh obviously Brody Lee's passing and you know refusing to get help it was uh it was certainly a, a trying time for him but you know you give him a year to try and bounce back and recover and what a way to do it you know obviously we had like remember in 2007 we had Chris Jericho with the uh the code breaking vignettes as well I mean people could tell it was Jericho but there was a I think there was a doubt in a lot of people's minds, you know, what about somebody else? Like, I think there were even rumours that it could have been like Carrying Cross or something, because obviously Carrying Cross is uh, one of his old themes used to be called White Rabbit. But mm-hmm. when it became apparent that, you know, it all signs were pointing to a Bray Wyatt return, you know, the Fireflies came out, there was the people dressed up as the Wyatt Six, you know, as Huskins, as Abby the Witch, the Fiend mask appeared on the, the announce table. I I think people were at that point were just desperate to see him, like, just to see him in person, just to confirm that it was him. And, you know, he's come back with this whole new, whole new outlook, whole new persona, but still he hasn't forgotten where he came from. And I think that's what was good about Bray Wyatt as a as a performer is that not only did he have a huge amount of creativity behind him highlighting all the characters associated with him, with him in the past but the fact that he was able to bounce back and create something new I think that's why people really really connected with him in that way Yeah, I think it was one of the more feel-good kind of returns of that period and Rush, you talked about how he took time off because of the loss of loss of uh, Brody Lee he hit cuts that promo on the following Smackdown coming out, brand new theme song and everything, what we got an indication more so of him as Wyndham rather than him as Bray he got this very emotional promo thanking the fans for their support, talking about how he lost himself, he lost people that were close to him he lost his job and then that segment ends with an appearance of a character we come on, come to learn as Uncle Howdy and began the seeds of a slow and I mean slow building storyline, which we sadly will never see the culmination of. And a lot of people were very confused by very early on, and its only real legacy, sadly, will be that fucking pitch black match. Yeah, they sell pitch black across the road for me in the newsagents. I've been two quid in a can and it tastes like fizzy benelin. It's absolutely horrendous. <laughs> um, the, the return was amazing. The promo was amazing. And I mentioned earlier about going from must-see TV to must-not-miss TV. This promo was must-not-miss. Eliminate, uh, sorry, Extreme Rules was must-not-miss because of him. And 
the Uncle Howdy character, there was Vincent, who's currently in Ring of Honor, um, had just left Impact Wrestling at the time. There were rumours it was him. There were rumours it was Bo Dallas. We now know it was Bo Dallas. And it was the weird one because we thought eventually it was going to lead to, you know, Bray is more of a, a straight-laced, I'm just me, I, I don't want to do the things I've done before because we knew, and that's something we've not touched on with how creative a person he is. In ring, he was really, really good and he, he was he was capable of delivering great matches. You know, his Hell in a Cell match, the feud with Roman Reigns might not have been the best, but his his match with Roman Reigns in Hell in a Cell was amazing. He had some good matches despite being, you know, handcuffed with silly stipulations and silly finishes with Dean Ambrose, had some good matches with Seth Rollins. So he was capable of bringing a good match. And we thought, right, this is exactly what we need. We like Bray Wyatt. We've done the spooky thing. Let's see if we can get him as a, a full-on main event or now with a bit more wrestling. And Bo Dallas has, you know, because for years people had advocated for him getting more of a push. He now has the gimmick behind him. Let's see where this can go. And unfortunately, it just, it was, it was too slow. It was too convoluted. It was too, for how creative Bray Wyatt is, I think at times someone needs to rein it in. And there was the whole, oh, I'm actually Uncle Howdy. Oh, no, I'm not Uncle Howdy. Oh, I'm, I'm a bad guy again. No, I'm not a bad guy again. <clears throat> and it just, it got a bit too convoluted. And unfortunately, we'll never see the end of it, you know. Pat McAvey, well, how'd he do? That just it completely killed that moment with LA Knight. And uh, unfortunately, we never got to see the culmination of it. And it would have been great to see Wyatt versus Dallas at WrestleMania. Um, it, it, just, it, it could have been something great. And unfortunately, again, due to real life stuff happening, which is uh, Wyatt being ill, but this this didn't happen, and unfortunately, we'll never get to see the culmination of it. Yeah, it seemed like the storyline had missed a mark, much like uh, Uncle Howdy did when he, he he dived off that platform and went nowhere near LA Knight at the end of that pitch black match. So again, another plan for Bray to fight Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania. Brock Lesnar went, "I'm not fighting him at WrestleMania," so they went, "Okay, I'll be him versus Bobby Lashley." Bobby seemed to try and make it work. Then the feud just all mentioned the feud stopped when Bray was taken off TV. Like you said, there was talk of like Vincent and Dutch, who are now the righteous in AEW and Ring of Honor, were backstage at some rods. They were talk that they were going to be involved in it. Alexa Bliss was being tempted back by Howdy. And like Eric Young has admitted he was brought in to be part of this Wyatt storyline, but obviously Bliss got pregnant, Bray got taken off TV, and when Young got wind that Vince was back in control, he went back out the door again and went back to Impact Wrestling. So a lot of what-ifs in there. And then sadly, the reason Bray was seeing on TV is he got COVID, which aggravated an already pressing condition with his heart. And Bray passed away the week of all on August 24th. And we were all still walking from other previous deaths like Adrian Street and Terry Funk. And then this one, at just 36 years of old, it's just 36 years old, just, just dropped this and... You had a very touching tribute episode, and I don't think really it's an overstatement to say that this is one of the more shocking wrestler deaths that we've had in a long time. Like the bet, the one that I immediately would think of was like immediately my mind just went back to Eddie. 
Mm. Yeah. Like, mm. it, it felt fucking horrible when we lost Eddie Guerrero. And it, it just felt so strange seeing everything grind to a halt the way it did. And then, sure enough, like SmackDown, like they tried to give like some little bits of progression to try and keep some things going at least. But you could tell that everyone was like, like just in that strange spot of like, how the hell do you process this? I mean, even just the visual on stage, like when they did the ten bell salute, and you see Strowman and Bruin, the last two standing there with the rocking chair, like ah, Jesus. That that image alone was. That got me bad because obviously Strowman had been off TV for some time. He was battling a bit of a, a bit of an injury, but I think it was very, very compassionate of WWE to allow Rowan to appear, you know, despite not being under contract with them anymore. But, um, no, I, I think you summed it up best, Dan. It's, um, it was probably the most shocking passing of heard since, since Eddie Guerrero, because obviously both them mid to late 30s, both in the prime of their careers and, you know, taken away by just a, a very tragic, um, tragic health, health event. It was both heart related as well. But, and it, it's weird because, you know, with Eddie, you know, you saw him compete and win like literally days prior and Bray, obviously, you know, he was off for a long time because of illness. But I think people were saying he was gearing to come back. You know, people were anticipating a comeback. I see like he'd just been given the all clear. Yeah. Uh, you know, the WrestleMania stuff didn't go to plan, but, you know, stuff like that happens. And there's not much you can do about illness. But when you hear rumors that, you know, he's possibly on the verge of a full recovery and then this happens... I mean, it just goes to show how cruel, you know, cruel of a hand fate can deal you just when you think somebody's getting better and all of a sudden they're not there. And just the the amount of outpouring that people had for him, it was... I don't think I've seen that much outpouring for a a single superstar ever since Eddie's passing because obviously they're both still active competitors at the time. I mean, even just trying to talk about it now, it is, it's a challenge in of itself because it's been, it's just been a month since his passing and it's still fresh in everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. But uh, this episode here was meant to be, you know, a trivia yeah, look back, a celebration of the life and career of Drew Wyham. We've talked about some very big highs and some lows throughout his booking and everything. And some members of our panel and some people, uh, on our Facebook page, I've gotten in touch with some of their highlights of Bray Wyatt, and we'll, we'll get read out what they said, and I'll go around you guys as well. Uh, David Campbell said, The Firefly Funhouse Bray is my favourite version. You can tell he was having fun in this world. Jack Graham said, My favourite memory was during one of my favourite times, the rebrand of SmackDown Live. His story with Randy Orton winning the tag belts, then winning the WWE title, which was such a great moment. Also, not forgetting the time where he pointed at Roman for the spear on that episode of Raw. Brian Dugley said that first entrance for The Fiend versus Finn Balor. Stephen Wilson says, The six-man tag match between the Wyatts and the Shield Elevation Shaper is a match I never get tired of rewatching. 
Gary Curran said a couple of spring to venues run on SmackDown in 2016 after the brand split and the debut of The Fiend in Toronto. Obviously, as we said, Gary was lucky enough to be there. Uh, Bertie King said, Bray is one of the most creative minds you'll ever see from a wrestler. It's all Firefly Funhouse and Fiend persona proves that. Also, you the Firefly Funhouse match too. You tell how he was an element there. Stories he could tell the characters when he was given enough freedom. Bray will be missed. Adam Kelly said, sat through a horrific, boring six-hour overall SmackDown TV in Manchester just to see the Fiend in a dark match segment at the end. Well worth the wait. And Dave, you left a comment here, which we'll get to in a little bit. But first, I had to get through Robert Shaw here, who left a fucking thesis uh, as part of his memories here. And I'll get to this as quickly as I can. Jeez, where to begin? Perfectly at the start, Robert. Would just say the break character is one of the reasons I still watch wrestling. His spellbinding promo during the Year of Worlds era was nothing sort of outstanding. I remember watching one particular promo in the ring. We had a pretty long promo during the initial World in His Hands slogan. was getting, and by the end of the long promo, he had a standing ovation. I can't remember the whole episode overall, but this is definitely an episode where I agree with the others. Uh, I agree with the others about his first entry to The Fiend versus Balor. Everything about screened money and was badass. It was visually standing aesthetically on the money. It's arguably the best entrance for me, especially as a first entrance. Firefly Funhouse's great work too. It showed his ability to truly build on a dark character around it. His new gimmick was going to be great after a shaky start. In fact, Smackdown a week or two before passing cross promo back to screamed Bray hunting a lot. There's a lot more here. There's so much to get through. But anyway, a lot of fun memories about Bray, especially during the Firefly Funhouse run. Derek Kevin also asked people about what their favourite feuds of Bray Wyatt. So I'm going to go around everybody and ask their favourite Bray moment or memory and their favourite feud. Dave, I'll start with you since you also commented on this post. Mm. I think my favourite feud... I mean, standalone matches aside, I would say his best feud was probably with Daniel Bryan. Like, cause I think he was a catalyst for the Yes movement to really take off at the start of 2014. And the finish following that tag team cage match that I mentioned earlier on, it's still... It's those yes chants are still deafening and ringing in my ears about, you know, how he was like, right, come on, attack me and stuff. And the the sort of back and forth, you know, in 2013 and then once again later when, you know, you had the fiend going up against Brian as well. I think there was some very good chemistry between the two of them, particularly when, you know, there was psychology of using the heart versus heel gloves as the fiend. Like the heel almost like sort of brought by Brian back to the the good side a little bit, you know, with a fresh look and reinvigorated yes movement a little bit. So yeah, I'll say the the Brian feud is probably my favourite. Hey, Daniel, easily like matches that come to mind: the Shield tag match at Elimination Chamber twenty fourteen. But I would say for match, I would easily go for the strap match with Brian. That was like they just went in there, knocked seven shades of shit out of each other, and it was glorious chaos. The best way I could describe that. Um, in terms of like favorite moment, oh, many years from. I'll mention one. Like it's, it wasn't like a huge moment. It wasn't like a big thing that went on to define him. It was just one of those things that you see it happen. And you're like, ooh. The 2016 Royal Rumble, the moment there's that stare down between Bray and Triple H, the vibe just changed. 
and immediately everyone's like, oh, like, and obviously they didn't need to go any more with that. Just that moment alone was like, okay, that that is pretty freaking cool. Because you could just imagine in another world, Bray Wyatt versus Triple H, that would have been good. Hmm. Ross. A best match, one hundred and ten percent, was the Roman Hell in the Cell match in twenty fifteen. An absolute brutal match. Um, best moments, you know. I think I, I said it earlier on. His best run was that September twenty sixteen to WrestleMania run. Uh, the Wyatt family, Randy Orton, in and out of the family. Um, I thought that was absolutely great. So. Yeah, I'm going to go best match Roman Reigns, best run, his 2016 run where he won the WWE title and main evented at WrestleMania. There you go. Uh, for me, in terms of moments, yeah, I've tossed up between some of those early introductory promos because I watched some of those back after the news of his passing and they still hold up and the whole getting across this cult-like character to the old school Hawaiian shirt break. And also any, any of the stuff he did in that initial run with the funhouse between the first episode of The Fun House and his food with Seth because one of my favourite moments being the introduction of the Muscle Man dance when he was trying to encourage Husker the Pig Boy Do the Muscle Man mate. dance! <laughs> and I think in terms of match I actually might say that triple threat from Smackdown post-elimination chamber the match him, Cena and AJ because again at, at that moment it felt like something special that he got the win there and the fact he was WWE champion at the time but that has been our tribute to Bray Wyatt, a guy who I think we could all admit will be sorely missed. A lot of potential there. A very one of the most creative people to ever grace WWE, and there are rumours of him going into the Hall of Fame next year, which I think he would have went into the Hall of Fame if he hadn't passed away. But I think either way, it's very much very well deserved, and we're we're glad that we could return to our future shows and talk about such a. We've gone quite long. Well, we've gone much longer than we thought we would, but it goes to show that someone like Bray White is somebody who evokes a lot of opinion and a lot of discussion. And so we cannot put a time frame on this, but I've enjoyed every minute and I've enjoyed having all of you here uh, to talk about it with me. I enjoy having all of you listening to the show. You can make sure to follow Eat Sleep Suplex on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. We are on it at Suplex Retreat. We enjoy the Facebook community page, get involved, answer. Uh, similar questions like the Bray Wyatt one for upcoming features so give your favourite moments answer the big question after every episode of Central Central comes out every week on the USSR feed all good, all good Android podcasts like Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean wherever you get your podcasts you've got Saturday Live every Saturday East Beat Sweat every so often it's a whole back catalogue five or years or so or more of feature shows and a few shows are going to be back we're going to go on a monthly basis for the next little while but the feature shows are making a back in the, for the foreseeable future we are going to be doing particular wrestler profiles but that is all the time we have for this week I want to thank my panel for joining me on this return of the features first off Daniel Campbell thank you very much sir thank you David Hockney thank you you thank you very much Ross McLeod thank you it's been decidedly average to be here (laughs) well Thank you all for being here. We were really glad that you were our friends. This was a friendship that will hopefully never, ever end. Until next time, follow the buzzards. Sports Social Podcast Network. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.